Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Jennifer Blumberg from Next Solutions. I'm Matt Stein from Working Concept. And I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geek in Boston. And today we have on Katie Fritz, Digital Project Manager at Foster Commerce. Katie, how you doing? Thanks. How are you? Doing good. And we wanted to talk about author experience. In fact, we want to talk about making an insanely good authoring experience. So if you are off in the Hyogo prefecture in, in Japan, massaging the Tajimagyu cow, <laughs> like and, you a, do. and a fellow massager asks you, hey, what is authoring experience anyway? Like, what, what would you tell them? Well, um, I would tell them that it is the way that content managers interact with systems. And content managers can be people who are behind the scenes, who are managing content for sites like the DevMode FM podcast site, or it can mm. be people who are the users of the system. Like if you're on Twitter and you're creating tweets, you're an author. So here's something interesting that I was thinking about is that we as developers focus on the CMS and setting up the CMS and this, that, and the other thing. But in some ways, the developers, a lot of times they can kind of end up being like deadbeat dads in a way in that they create the thing, but they aren't the ones who kind of live with it day in and day out. It's a totally different set of people, right? And the, the content authors, the people who are actually then populating the, the site with content are the ones that are really going to be spending the time there. Yeah, they're the ones who have to maintain the site. You know, we make it great for the launch. And then a year later, if the content authors aren't comfortable doing their part, then the site's not going to be fulfilling its goals anymore. So how do we do that? Like what what is a way, what are ways that we can make the content authoring experience good and are these generic things or are they different for each kind of group that we work with mm, good question so there's a lot of ways there are generic ways and there are specific ways <laughs> All right. i'd say to get started you really want to think about the authors as users and just get a good grounding and user experience so user experience as you probably know is the way that just people in general interact with systems. So how all kinds of people are interacting with the website that you're building with the CMS. And authors are one particular role of those people. And a big way to work with user experience is with testing. So that's kind of the holy grail of improving user experience is to actually try to observe people interacting with what you've built and make it better based on what you see. Now, how often do you think that actually happens for websites that get put up? Uh, not as much as we wish it could because... It does take a lot of time and budget. So we can talk about some ways that require a little bit less hands-on with the users too. But a nice thing about authors is you tend to be working with them as you're developing the site. You're usually in contact with the client, so you can work with the authors to customize the system for them. Oh, and I think it's just fascinating to be able to just watch them, you know, oh, and, and to see how they interact because there are some things that I've seen people do that I've just have even had it where they've taught me things that I didn't even know you could do. But I've seen people do things that I just never would have expected without having seen them actually do it. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, and anyone here like uh, chime in. Do you actually get a chance to observe the people you create the site for using it? Is that a thing that, that you're able to do? Uh, usually only when there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Screen yeah, share. When, <laughs> yeah, when sometime after we've gone live, there some some part of the training didn't stick. Yeah, it, it's usually only when something's not going right. I was saying that's the most important time to watch them do it. So if you're only doing it in one context, that's the context. How about you, Jen? Do you do this ahead of time at all? Not so often and should definitely do it more. And I also agree you can learn some very interesting things from the authors, um, just the way that they use the system and the ways that they don't use the system. There have been times when basic keyboard shortcuts that I just assumed everybody would know, they didn't know. And so they were sort of clicking six times to get in a date. 
date when I thought, oh, you could just, you know, hit that button and the date would go in. And they say, oh, wow, you just saved me a whole bunch of time. Why didn't I know that? And I just assumed that all computer users would know that when in reality, we, the geeks, only know it because we've been working on computers for a very long time. So it's good to know that a lot of the clients or authors may not be that comfortable with computers and to try to get into their heads, something that's hard for us to do, but really important. Well, that's a, you raise an interesting point in that how much of this whole authoring experience thing, if we're packaging it up, is really author training? Like how, how much of this is that we are actually, we, we want to create a good experience for the author. How much of that is training them to use the thing and how much of it is, you know, customizing the UI and that type of thing? That's an awesome question. I think it, it probably varies a little bit from project to project. I would say maybe it's a little bit more than half training, a little bit less than half customizing, mm. um, because, you know, at a certain point, it is going to be a new system and they are going to have to learn some new things, but you can make that learning easier. One thing I want to point out with training is that while we do want to definitely do training up front, there's a lot of things you can do to do kind of just-in-time training or on-demand training through the way you document and set things up. Yeah, I mean, just reminds me of when I was in college and I was making software designed for end users in college. I had a girl that I was friends with that she was, I think she was like an English major, really smart, but wasn't super computer literate. And I had her reviewing kind of my documentation that I was doing. And she was giving me grief because I was using the words intuitive, like the the user interface or the UI was intuitive. And she said, you know, intuitive means like, I'm going to know this, but if I don't have the context, I'm not going to know this, right? So it, so part of the authoring experience has got to be that we've got to give people a certain amount of context. Like they have to be at least somewhat computer literate, right? Yes. Yeah. I've had clients before where they just weren't that comfortable using a computer at all. And you know, I did as much as I could, but you can only do so much sometimes. You know, you still have to know how to interact with the mouse and keyboard and like some basic symbols, that sort of thing. And you got to be careful that you don't make something that is super great for some, you know, <laughs> I hate to stereotype, but like a CEO who barely knows how to use his computer and someone that is super savvy, like you could put something in there that has a kind of guided wizard that, you know, kind of holds their hand through everything. And that might be perfect for some person, but then the other person who's a whiz at, at entering the data in there is just going to annoy them and get in their ways. How do you do that? How do you adapt it? Or, or come up with a balance that is good for everybody or, or adapt it to each person. Yeah, I think that's a universal problem with user experience where you often have different types of users with different needs. And for each project, you really have to prioritize. So first you have to identify who those people might be. And I like how you came up with personas right there. You, know, you have the CEO and the power user. Right. And then you have to decide who's more important and some ways that you can figure out who might be more important is who's going to be using it more at the amount of time, whose work with the system is more important. You know, if the power user is responsible for actually putting in the content and the CEO is just checking things, maybe the power user is more important. But also, who's where is the bigger risk if things go wrong? So if the CEO is going to start firing people if he gets mad that he can't use the system, then maybe we need to cater to the CEO first. And I know we're saying CEO just as an example, and it's fun to pick on the CEO, but if you ever get into one of those situations where the CEO or the CMO, if they're the people that are in there doing day-to-day -day content editing... I think it's time for a discussion about why don't you have someone that is a marketing coordinator or someone who can be in there making these changes where they're going to be adding value in a good way. Someone who's a CMO or a CEO hopefully isn't doing this because there's a place where they can add a whole lot more value in their organization. So I think sometimes you may have to have those discussions when people who are way above that pay grade are being asked to go in and make content edits. Yeah, 
Definitely. I think another way that you can find that balance. So I think first you want to figure out who your primary persona is and design the system more for them. But that doesn't mean that you can't suit the needs of the other people. So for example, if you're prioritizing a power user, you want it to be easy to use and you want to have shortcuts and allow them to do things quickly. But you could also have instructions that are available, you know, one click away. So maybe there's not a wizard that they have to go through every time, but maybe there's an optional wizard. Or maybe they can expand some instructions or click a link to go see more instructions. Yeah, because an ideal interface kind of adapts itself to the person that's using it, or at least allows you to turn certain things on or certain things off. Yeah. Right. In terms of what what is what is helpful at first may not be helpful to you later on once you've gained experience with the system. So it may not even be different people that we're kind of, you know, coming up with scenarios for, but it could be the same person just at different stages in their learning. Yes, that's such a good point. My experience has been too that one important thing is is their learning style. Like I usually work with projects where they're a be a handful of editors and maybe at most, you know, 20 or something. So we're not talking about personas as much as specific people. And I've had some people do great with field instructions and things being well named. Some people actually preferring written guides, like separate long PDFs. I had one person actually read the entire thing once, which was incredible (laughs) and is rare. Um, And then some people seem to really learn from visual guides and screencasts and would rather spend time with, you know, just videos of watching somebody click through things. And I I feel like people's adjusting to people's learning styles has been a big part of my process of how I'll tailor things. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it definitely depends on your specific users. And if you have time to do all of it, you know, to be future proof, you can, but realistically, you know, most projects, you're not going to have time. So you want to figure out what, who the most uh, important users are and prioritize for those. So what I think is really interesting is we had Sean Swicks Wang on here recently from Netlify, super smart guy. And we did an interview with him just kind of talking about the Jamstack and Netlify and all that kind of good stuff. And I had him look over the description of the, the podcast and I had in there authoring experience. And what he wrote back to me was, you know, hey, maybe you should take this out. I don't want to be coining a new term. And I was just like, well, <laughs> we're, we're actually we're about to do a, a podcast, an entire podcast dedicated to author experience. And, I, and I'm not saying this to make fun of, of Sean at all, because, again, he's a really super smart guy. But it does show you how broad the field is and how many different stakeholders there are that we have to keep in mind in terms of, you know, there there are developers out there that you know, they, they don't even know that authoring experience is a thing. So how do we how do we educate people? that not only is this a thing, but in cases where someone is working with a content management system, they're going to be the ones that are going to be spending the most time there. So the developer experience matters a whole lot less than the author experience for some of these things, right? So how do we how do we educate people or especially developers that we work with that you can't just make this thing work, you have to make this workable for the person who's going to use it? I think maybe in similar ways to how we educate the developer community about other things. I mean, conferences, through documentation, through developer Twitter. I'm thinking, you know, I did the conference talk in 2018 at Dot All about author experience, and Kyle did the one this last year about author experience. Hopefully that introduced a lot of craft developers to the term. Years ago, I was at a, I think it was Breaking Dev Conference, and Kara McGrain, who has done some really excellent work in the world of authoring, yeah, author experience, was talking, and this was, yeah, 2012. So at the time, she was talking about wouldn't it be great if we would put Google Analytics on the control panel of a site and actually try to see what people are doing, where they're running into problems. 
here we are in 2019. I, I think right now we have tools out there, something like Full Story, which actually mm-hmm. will capture the screen and let you see where it, it thinks people are experiencing frustration. I, I'd love to see someone do an audit of a, uh, a craft control panel or any other CMS for that matter, actually do some analytics and you know user behavior research into where people are having good experiences, where things are going wrong, um, You know, actually getting to watch screen recordings of it. I have to think that that's a service that could be sold to clients and definitely could be helpful just to understand how people are really using it when they haven't hit a problem that they've identified, but maybe they're doing something not in the way that you thought they'd be doing. Mm. Um, It could be interesting. I love that idea. So like asynchronous user testing. Exactly. But are we thinking about aggregating and anonymizing this data and just like and like (laughs) everyone just is lumped in there so we can actually get a picture of what's going on? Are you talking about on a per client confidential basis? Yeah, I I think the latter where you'd be selling this as a service for research into not only how are the end users using the website, but how are your content authors doing? Are, Are they being productive? If you have a large enough team finding a way to cut the amount of time it takes them to enter in a blog post or make an update to a product or whatever it is might pay for itself over time. Uh, I don't work on the sort of projects maybe where there's the the sort of scale that that might make sense, but I'm sure someone listening might. So if there, if craft four has a checkbox that says share authoring experience data with craft <laughs> to help, to help make craft CMS better, who turns it on? Do you turn it on Katie? That seems like there's privacy concerns <laughs> if we're not anonymizing it. Well, it, no, it would be anonymized is what I'm saying. It, oh. w- it would be anonymized for sure. But yeah. do we want to share in the same way that, you know, Apple asks you, can I share crash data with you, for instance, to help make the applications better? W- what if Craft did implement either Hotjar or Full Story or whatever in the control panel? It's opt in. You got to turn it on and it's all anonymized, right? There's no way to trace it back to any particular person, but it gives them some kind of aggregate data that they can look at, they'll get metrics like rage clicks and dead ends and pain points and that kind of thing. What, what do you think about that in terms of making the whole the whole better? I like the concept, but I am thinking about the craft sites that I've built out and I've customized the control panels pretty heavily mm-hmm. for each one. So I think that like for Pixel and Tonic to collect that data and aggregate might not be that useful. But I think on an individual site basis, that could be really useful. I think we need to bring artificial intelligence into the mix. Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, just have a consultant come and do it in real time. What do you think, Jennifer? Are you going to turn that checkbox on? Probably not, just because I have a habit of trying to share as little as possible. Right. But if but if I, if I it turned out that it would greatly improve the user experience in some way, then, you know, I, I think I probably would. I'm having trouble imagining how it would, but definitely, you know, I'll I'll wait a little bit and see and then go ahead. All right. Fair enough. And another thing I wanted to bring up is that Suvik did a talk at the 2018.all about architecting a content website. And one of the things that he noted, and this is kind of piggybacking off of what you just said, Katie, but he noted that craft is such a blank slate that the onus is really on you to create the authoring experience. And you mentioned that you highly customize the, the craft CP when you're using it. And I think there are some big benefits to that, but are there any downsides in terms of then they don't have knowledge that then translates to the the next time that they encounter a craft CMS, for instance. Yeah, that is the main downside. Well, I'd say there's two. So one is on the author side that if they've used another craft site, yeah, their knowledge might not transfer as much. And then I think the second thing is it's harder for developers. So I work at an agency mm. and as we go from site to site, it can take some time to get oriented if we're using different wording or different orders for things, if our setup is not consistent from site to site. Yeah, tell me a little bit more. I'm interested to know 
you know, I, I've done things with CPCSS and CPJS. Hopefully now you're just making a module and you're not using those anymore, right, Patrick? You're just making a module and stuffing those in there, I hope? <laughs> Sometimes, you know I love a good GUI. Oh, my goodness. All right. <laughs> no, so, I got to admit, I'm still using CPCSS. <laughs> Thanks, Lindsay. <laughs> so in, in any event, to Patrick's question, like what, what exactly are you doing to customize this stuff for people? Um, a lot of it is the built-in stuff. So just choosing labels, renaming things sometimes. So you know, instead of title field, it might be event name. Or instead of in one site, that's more of a CRM. We've renamed users to people because not every person who's going to be in the site is going to be a user of the site. So we actually did that using a translation field. Um, I'm looking at a list now. So I have a plugin manifest for one of my projects, and I have a list of all the author experience plugins I'm using. Uh, so to clarify, the translation field is where you can leverage the fact that Craft does translations by kind of key value pair, where you've got people on one side, and then it'll have the English word on the other. So you can rename a whole lot of things in Craft by just doing that, right? Yeah, and it'll rename them globally. So every time that word comes up, it'll be translated into the new word. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that because that's a really neat kind of built-in way that you can customize craft. to. And, and sometimes these little changes make a big difference. Like if you change what singles is referred to as, for instance, like singles may not mean a whole lot to, to other people. Yeah, that's a good example. I think you actually taught me about the translations. Uh, Andrew. I, <laughs> yeah, I did that once where we renamed entries to content, and it was, it was nice to have a training where I didn't have to explain the meaning of the word entries. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking about doing that, actually. Some of the other things that I do with plugins on the expanded singles plugin lets you just get that singles grouping taken out of the sidebar altogether. And I think there's another one, sidebar entry types, lets you break out entry types so that you can go directly to an entry type instead of having mm. to click on the section first. Um, so things like that that change the navigation. I also like the Control Panel Nav plugin from Josh. That needs some updates, but overall, and what does that what does that let you do? Yeah, so that takes the side the main sidebar on the left side of the Craft Control Panel and lets you customize it. So you can rearrange things. You can add new links. Um, something that I think Josh is planning to do in the future is to allow nesting. So like some plugins will have one link and then you click on it and it expands to show sublinks. Right now, that's not possible, but I think that would make a big difference. Mm. So um, for my mega site right now that I'm working on, we have a CRM section and a content section, a tools section, settings section. And we've rearranged, excuse me, all the links to go under there and renamed them sometimes. I also like to put direct links to things that are in globals. So if you have your navigation in globals, don't make your authors memorize what globals means. Just link to the specific things within that. Yeah, because outside of a programming context, like if you think about it, like forget that you know anything about programming and someone said globals to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's just, it, yep. it's very strange, <laughs> you know? I mean, I guess the closest I think your average person would get would be like global is globals are like global events or global news or something, you know? I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I, I spent more time with clients just not knowing where something is. I'm like, oh, it's in globals. It's in globals. And somehow it never kicks in. And that's not on them. Like I, I think about this way more often. And I think it just goes to show that, yeah, some things just aren't intuitive to go back to, to prior. And mm. yeah, globals is one of them. Things that I, I think it makes sense that, okay, this is going to be used on footers or on, you know, just a commonly used module. Let's put in globals. It, it never really sticks. I almost wonder like, you know, do you, I don't want to go and put it in a single because that's not that much better. But yeah, it, it, the globals thing has never really stuck for, for our client authors. So is it just yeah. a case of renaming the word globals to something like site experience or overall settings? Or is it that something, something's actually actually not understood about the concept itself? Yeah, I, I'd be spitballing. I, I, I don't know if 
a word change would help or I don't know. Yeah. You know, share shared content or something like that. But yeah, globals for whatever reason has, I've always found that that is a sticking point. Mm-hmm. Are they editing globals a lot? Depends. It depends. Sometimes there's navigation and they happen to be in a place where they're making some rapid changes to their navigation or there, you know, there's something that involves like pricing data, something there where, that made sense to be put into globals because it's a global element and but does need to be edited a frequent amount of time. But yeah, it, it depends. My problem is globals are, globals are kind of a ghost town where conceptually they make sense when we, we launch a site, but they're typically things that people don't edit a lot because it'll be mm-hmm. like the site name. Well, that's not a good example. Something like that that's not likely to change very often, like the company's legal name or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody does finally need to update it, they haven't touched it in like two years. So <laughs> they just don't know where to go to find it. And it's no longer into it. Something that I found that really, I think it's a trap that a lot of people fall into. And this is a personal opinion, so it could be wrong. But I think as developers, we love the idea of being able to create this super flexible system that people can go in there and they can edit absolutely anything. Like Patrick, they can go in there and they can edit the nav and they can do whatever they want. You know, For a lot of the sites that I work on, like I don't even let them edit the nav. <laughs> like I'm like, no, that's not, that's not your thing. Like If you need that, you need a developer who's then going to do that for you. And, and yes, of course, it depends on the site. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think you live in a Andrew Welchian utopia where, yeah, you know, <laughs> people are like, well, I've hired Andrew Welch and he'll at the nav for me. I find so many people that I'm working with are used to WordPress where they can go into, you know, appearance and menus and have full control over their, their menus. Right. I, I find that they'd almost be a bit annoyed if they if I was told, oh, you can't do that. I need to go in and you know, add in a, another unordered list thing for you. Well, here's here's the thing. I mean, there are definitely cases. I'm not saying this from an absolute point of view because there are definitely cases where they really do need to have some kind of control over this stuff. But I think there are a whole lot of other cases where it's not even me as a programmer deciding they can't edit it. It's someone who is the mm-hmm. um, the the UX designer, sure, you know, who has designed the UX for this site, and they don't want anyone screwing with it. You know, like this is the way the nav is going to be. They don't want some random person coming in there and adding then 10 additional items to it and making the nav, you know, just horrible. And I think that some of the some of the difficulty that people have with authoring experiences, they can be presented with something that's too complicated. And and a way to make authoring experience better, at least in some ways, is to make it simpler. Give them just the things that they need and that's it and not try and make it super customizable. I mean, what do you, Katie, do you have any thoughts on that? You think I'm living in my own? I mean, I know I am my own, <laughs> my own little world, but, but yeah, what do, do you have any questions? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two totally separate questions. So for, forget about that. The first one. What do you think about that idea of making the authoring experience better by through simplicity and through presenting only the things that they actually can and should be editing? Absolutely. I think that a lot of times our job is to kind of save people from themselves and mm. make it so that they can't mess things up. I think that if an author knows that they can go in and they can break everything, then they're going to be scared to go in and try anything. So by putting up guardrails, we're empowering people a lot. So I tend to try to put in a lot of restrictions at the beginning and then take them out as people request that. So for example, most of the time I won't let authors delete entries while they're still getting used Mm, to the system because I don't want them to worry that they're accidentally going to delete something. Also, you know, it can be good to make sure you're doing frequent backups and reassure the authors that you're doing frequent backups so that you can restore if needed. I'm going to go even further. I'm going to, I'm going to get Patrick even more riled up. Oh boy. 
And I'm going to say that if you're working on, you know, a a pretty big project, you know, a six-figure project that has a whole bunch of experts in user design, user experience, all that kind of stuff, and they handcraft this experience, I think you're being irresponsible by letting just anyone change absolutely anything about it. Well, and I never said anyone. I didn't say that, you know, (laughs) Daryl down in the mailroom should be able to log in and remove products from the main nav. But I I think that (laughs) someone says, oh, we want to change the wording on this. We want And I say, okay, well, we've got to roll code. And they're like, what do you mean you've got to roll code? Like we we paid you to build a content management system. Why why can't Mm. we change the wording on that? Well, you know, I hard code into my templates. I don't think that will fly. Uh, now, that being said, there whether it's craft or anything else, there are user groups and permissions. You can set things up, you know, similar to what Katie said with not letting, allowing someone delete, make it so that only a, a CMO level or what have you could go in and make that sort of change. But I also don't want to, you know, if it's been a year or two years maybe and, and no one's touched this site in forever, I don't have to be liable to get a call, you know, <laughs> someone saying, hey, we're, we're going live with this big thing tomorrow. We've been planning it for months and we need to change this. And now no one in the back end can figure out how to update the naming for this. And I'm like, oh, well, we got to get that old site rolling again. I also don't want that sort of liability on my end. Right. I totally no, I, agree, I agree with Patrick there. And I've been on both sides of that. So as a developer, yeah, like you don't want to be in charge of maintaining their site forever if that's not the agreement you have. And as a content strategist and UX designer, because I wear too many hats, I often have crafted something very specifically and I've worked with the stakeholders to create something. So I don't want them to just go in and really quickly change it without thinking about it. And that's a really hard line to walk. I think sometimes you can help with that by just putting in good warnings and putting the context in right next to the field that they might go and change and remind them like, these are the goals of this. And this is the guidelines that you all decided on. So try to follow that. But on the other hand, it is their site, you know, if they really want to do it. Yeah, I think that's something that we should remember because, I mean, especially if if your team has designed it and it looks beautiful, you don't want to go back six months later and see how it's been mangled by, you know, too many too many <laughs> things in the nav or they, they start, the, the way that they get around your constraints is sometimes remarkable. And, you know, this site is in your portfolio. How dare they? Right. So sometimes what we do if we have time is we check in periodically just to see what they've been up to. And if they've done some questionable things, kind of proactively let them know that they did this strange thing. And what if we changed it to, you know, make it better by doing it some other way? And I don't know whether it's grouping the 20 things in the nav into, you know, you know, into consolidating them somehow or into a drop down and they might actually appreciate that. But then, you know, you don't get stuck with, you know, Patrick's point where you're you're sort of being called upon to update things that you really don't want to, like, you know, if a, a hard coded navigation. I think there's a philosophical danger for too much flexibility as well. Like mm-hmm. my goal is to help clients focus on their content. And one of the things I need to do or I think I need to do is get anything else or anything extraneous out of the way. And when it comes to something like navigation that has them thinking more about pages and how they go to edit a certain thing and a certain page, then I've kind of done them a disservice because they're thinking more about the pages they're making than the content that they're working with and managing. I think I agree. there was a back in, there was another content management system that I'd worked with previously it had a, an add-on that rhymes with uh, Trucksure. And it, one of the big problems with that is it, it made it very easy to arrange navigation and pages on the site, but it also completely tied you into thinking about the site as pages and made it very hard to get out of that mode editing content. And I think that's one thing that's really nice about Craft is that there's a lot of flexibility there, but you can hide away things like that to benefit the client thinking about content. Well, and I've heard people pining away and wanting something like Trucksure 
which is not a word, by the way, Matthew. Like, it's not even a word. It sure it is. But but part of our job, I think, is, like you said, saving people from themselves. And, and I, I agree with what you're saying, Patrick, that as long as you have a good permission system in there, okay, let them edit the nav, but you have to have like super admin permissions to be able to do it. But I, I do think that we do have a responsibility to not only save people from themselves, but also present to people only the stuff that they really can and should be editing. Like one, one of my big pet peeves is when people make content builders. I see people do this all the time in, in craft that what they, they're trying to do is they try to build their own mini little wicks, right? Where you can add a new matrix block and then you can control everything, right? You can control how many columns go in here and, and what's the, the the text? Is it center left aligned? You know, this, that, the other thing. And I think that's a horrible way to do it because what you're doing is you're taking the responsibility of designing the, the user experience and the visual, the graphical design of the site. You're taking that responsibility from yourself and you're just punting it off to them. You who have training doing this stuff are saying, oh, you know, I don't know what they're going to want to do, so I'm just going to let them do whatever the hell they want. I mean, what do you think, Katie? Is that, I think that's irresponsible. I don't want to pass judgment on it necessarily, but it is something I try <laughs> to avoid. <laughs> because, yeah, I think something I've observed with pretty much every client I've worked with is a lot of times they mostly interact with their site from one device, one computer. And so they tend to think about designing a page in terms of like print layouts, and they don't think about responsive content and reusable content. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is our job you know, to design a system that will work on a variety of different contexts and just set it up that way. So like Matt was saying, to get them thinking about the content, not the pages, to have them think about like the person or the event or the book and not like how it's all going to fit together on a specific page, because they are going to be thinking about a page with certain dimensions and they're going to start wanting to center things. Yeah. Put a border here. They're going to start designing and it, yeah, it'll be inconsistent. It'll be buggy. Well, and I think your odds of what what Jennifer talked about, about coming back in six months and <laughs> finding that the site is no longer something you want in your portfolio. They they go up astronomically the more control you give the client over what because, you know, you give them the ability to do it, they're going to do it. <laughs> you know? And I think, at least from my perspective, a graphic designer and a user experience designer, they should be designing kind of the components, like the things that can be built. The developer implements that design. And then the content author gets to add their content to that stuff. And I think that if you do that, you have experts in the right stage at each stage of the production of this thing. And I think you're going to end up with something that you're you're being a lot nicer to your authors. And you I think you're giving them a better author experience by actually giving them rails and not saying, you can just do whatever you want. Here's a WYSIWYG editor, you know? Yes, I think... You forgot to mention a part at the beginning. So you were saying the content authors come in at the end and put their stuff in, but to know what to design, you really need to know about the content and the content structure up front. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. think that's part of the problem. I think if you don't do that, and if you don't do that work up front, then you will have to build something a lot more flexible because you don't know the shape of the content. It also adds quite a bit of development. If you're going to be super flexible, you have to account with your front end, all of the possible permutations of what they might want to do. Otherwise, you'll get things that look a bit strange. And the more that you the more columns you have, and the more ways you can align, you know, six different things, I think it makes the UX it if the client takes advantage of that, and you know, has six different pages with six totally different looks, look and feels, it's going to be strange. And it also puts a lot of, I think, extra work for the designer, the front end, the front end developers to have to account for that rather than if you just have, you know, one column, an image left and an image right, a quote, and that's all that 99% you know, of people ever seem to need. So why add all that extra work if you don't need it? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think that we can, if we produce a site and, you know, let's say there's like a, we do all our due diligence and we, we've done a nice job with the design and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And there's, you know, maybe there's even branding guidelines that go along with it or, or content publishing guidelines. If we come back in six months to a year and it looks terrible and we don't want it in our, in our portfolio, I don't think we can game, blame the client. I think it's our fault because we let, we gave them the, the ability to do that. I agree. I think there's a litmus test for this, for how well, how balanced the build has been. Like where you finished everything, the content is really clean. The layouts are exactly what everybody hoped for. They're responsive. And then somebody says, can we make this an RSS feed? If you've done poorly, you will (laughs) panic at that thought. And if it's gone really well, it'll be no big deal. Right. That's what I keep finding over and over. Patrick, you had some uh, experience with something like this kind of happening to you for a, a client that you said the, the content builder talk is kind of real for you? Yeah, a little bit. I, I can't get into specifics, but I, I've definitely seen both sides. I've seen clients that we've done a, a content builder-esque build for, and I would say most of our sites are like that. You know, the, the the content modules that we're building on the homepage can also be used elsewhere. It's interesting. There is a, the name escapes me, there is a nice craft plugin where you can actually limit on a matrix field which blocks are usable from channel or entry layout to layout, mm-hmm. which would have been really helpful here to say, oh, these handful can be used on the homepage. These ones can be used on interior pages, but we haven't had that. But yeah, I've had some sites where people have done really well and months later, they've stayed really on brand because we tied them into, you know, you can use these few colors, you can use these few layout options. And we got away, we at one point dabbled with, you know, the whole, this is more a craft two thing, but doing matrix with Neo, and then any block can go inside another block, and it's just blocks all the way down. Oh, God. Yeah. And I mean, it's nice from a not having to rewrite code all the time and being able to just, it it can be nice, but it also can really go out of control. I've seen both sides. I've seen clients that have done really well with it. And I've seen ones that have made our site, uh, you know, one where we keep the old comp around to show off in our portfolio, but we don't, we tell them not to look at the current iteration. (laughs) All right. So, I mean, we've kind of strayed a little bit maybe from our, uh, in our discussion about author experience because we're, we're kind of talking about outcomes mm-hmm. right but I do think it do, it does tie into it a little bit from the point of view of you know part of your job as someone who is creating the author experience at least in my opinion is giving the the person a, a sane sandbox in which to play yeah I was thinking as I was preparing for this that's the purpose of good author experience is so that you can have content that's clean structured effective current mm. You know, in perpetuity, that you'll be able to keep maintaining that and that your authors are happy. So I think it's both the personal side and the project outcome side. Yeah. And in an ideal world, they only see exactly what they need to see so that you're not, you don't have a, a ton of information that they have to deal with or a ton of uh, UI, UX that they have to understand and no more and no less than they need. And you, you never are going to get the exact ideal, but that's kind of what you shoot for, I think, right? Yeah. So that you can get those outcomes. What are some strategies that you use to ensure that those outcomes happen in terms of, you know, when you're designing things like you're designing a, a section in fields and, you know, what are some of the, the broad general things that you do that you found have helped people to adopt and and use the sites that you're building? I think a lot of it starts with how you design it in the first place and how you collect the information. 
So talking to them, seeing what their existing content is, doing a lot of content modeling, figuring out the extremes. So, you know, what's the fewest number of characters this field could have, or what's the longest it could be, or could you ever have you know, three authors on one paper, that sort of thing, so that when you do design it, it actually reflects what they need. And then they're going to be a lot less likely to be trying to hack it to make it fit their needs. So just like if you're a developer, you spend a whole lot of time up front understanding the problem before you ever even lay down a single character of code? Definitely, yeah. And I think you can go too far. Like I think there are projects where I've spent too much time mapping it out outside of the system. And then once, because once you do start testing it, then you find out more. So I think there's a medium somewhere where you want to know enough that you can set things up, but then you're still going to learn more once you set it all up and craft and they're in there and they're editing the content. You're always going to get feedback at that point. Let's talk about some concrete things. So like a, at a, a base level in craft and in just about any CMS, we have a field. Mm-hmm. So what are some things that we can do for our fields to make sure that it's a, a nice content authoring experience for people? Sure. So you want to have it be the right kind of field. So as specific as possible without mm. locking them out of you know the edge cases that they might need. So if it's a date. And why does that matter? Why does it matter that it's specific? Yeah. So for consistency, primarily. So that if, for example, if it's dates, you want to have a date field so that you're collecting that information in a specific way so that you don't end up with three different formats of dates. Or if... It's all about it's all about data hygiene, right? Exactly. I mean, the idea is that you want to have everything entirely clean. And that's why Axe, I mean, apparently it's author experience, but it's also a body wash for men, right? <laughs> and... In the same way, do stuff to make sure the hygiene of the data is nice, right? I want to hate that analogy, but I kind of like it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it is about data hygiene. It's about keeping that content really structured, really clean. Yeah, and what ways can you make it so that, okay, let's say you had a field Mm -hmm. and there are a few few different choices that of things that could go in there. You could just make like a plain text field, but but no, like you would you would pick a drop down so that they couldn't screw it up, right? Yeah, you want to make it really hard for them to screw up. My favorite right. book for user experience is called Don't Make Me Think. And mm. I think that's a really good principle. Like you want them to think about the message of what they're saying. You don't want them to think about how they're putting into into the site. So you want it to be really straightforward for them. And that means taking away choice a lot of the time. Kind of gets back to what I was saying before, Patrick. You know? <laughs> I mean, also validation is really good. So in craft, you have the option to do these structured fields that will do validation for you. In other cases, you might want to build in some validation, especially you know if you're doing front end forms, you can build in your validation so that the user generated content that you're accepting meets certain hygiene standards. Yeah. What about just something basic like instructions? Yep. Yeah. So labels and instructions are the other thing. Something that I tend to want to do is be very wordy and add a lot of instructions, but then you do have the people who don't read any of the instructions like Matt was saying. Right. So you, I think instructions are a last resort. I think you first want people to be able to guess just from context. So from where it is in relation to other things and what it looks like and you know what the formatting is, what they're supposed to put in there. And then the label is the next most important. So the word that you're using. Um, something in Kyle's talk from Dot All this year that I liked was talking about consistency of labeling. So making sure that you're using the same words in different contexts. So you know, heading and subheading, that header and subheading, for example. Well, it's just like if you were working at a newspaper, they have a style guide. Right. Yeah. In terms of the 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 way, you know, is it an Oxford comma or not? You know, this is the word that we use to describe this group. And this is the verbiage for this. Right. And you're essentially saying for your content authoring, for the stuff you present to people, have a style guide. So everything is consistent. Yeah. So have a style guide, like create the style guide with them up front, but then don't expect the style guide to live in people's brains. Build it in to the individual fields where you can or where you can't leave little hints. 
you know, if it's a field, if it's a biography field, you know, leave notes about the format of the biography that they decided they were going to have. And then you can also link to the style guide somewhere else. And this would be a good place well, to I'm plug a, those, you know, guide and user guide plugins. I, I meant a style guide for you, like as you are creating the the fields and descriptions and that kind of stuff to make oh, sure yeah. you are consistent with stuff, you know? Yeah, that's a great idea. Something I want to like, ask the panel is when you're planning fields, do you just start putting them in or do you put them in a spreadsheet? How do you model your craft fields before you build them into the site? Now, I've got a, I've got an idea in my head just from knowing the personalities of the people <laughs> that are on here. I think I know how everyone does it. I'm going to see how right I am. Jennifer, how do you do this? With meticulous planning, of course. Yes, I knew it. I knew it. Copious notes and mind maps. <laughs> wow. Very on brand. <laughs> wow. Patrick, how do you do it? We just do it live, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you're just in there and you're just clicking new field, new field, new field. And you got stuff header in there. and subheading all over the place, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. Matthew, how about yourself? I try to trick them during the IA process. After we've looked at everything, I put together something called a content inventory. And secretly, it's in a format that's basically the sections and fields and just notes about what type of content they are but really they map to the field types that i would use just in mm-hmm. kind of plain english and that usually goes pretty well they wonder why we're looking at it but we we power through and usually that helps like get the initial layout for everything so you kind of have a mix of both what jennifer and patrick do in that you're you're meticulously planning stuff but then you're adding the the loop of you're getting the client involved before you actually solidify this stuff yeah, because once they see once they see the build, they'll know exactly how we got there from the document that we put together and talked about, which maybe made no sense to looking at the build, they'll completely get it and then hopefully be more engaged as we're planning things that we don't see yet. Because my experience has been that once we can see things, then we'll get a lot more feedback. But before then, it can be murky. That's a great idea. It's something that I definitely want to remember because I sometimes just assume that the client won't be really interested in the nitty gritty details. But actually, if you can get them involved, it might save a lot of time that you could be wasting later on. I didn't say that they were interested always, yeah. but my goal is to <laughs> capture their interest and trick them into thinking about it. Uh, this this reminds me that like I, just earlier today, we had this issue where our, our home printer wasn't working. And so, you know, my wife is like, hey, you know, go fix it. It's not working. I'm like, all right, I'll be your geek squad. Like, I'll go do this thing, try and fix it. And then I, I came up and I had fixed it. And she's like, oh, what was wrong? And I'm like, do you really want to know? She came over and I held her captive. So she had to hear the entire thing, the entire like, you know, it was because the WPA personal and it was on wireless and they didn't understand the, all this kind of stuff. And she's just like, she bent her head back and she started snoring, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I'd be imagining that you're, you're because I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of like Jennifer in that I tend to think that a lot of my clients just don't care. Do we have different kinds of clients or, or what's the deal, Matt? Maybe. I mean, I'm in terms of navigation, I know I live in Welchtopia, but I don't know how to compare. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think that's part of the challenge because it's much more fun to to review things and to give feedbacks on things when you can play with them and interact with them. That's why over the years, like I've moved more of the design process process into as soon as it can be a build or something that we're interacting with, I'll mm-hmm. try to get there because I'll just get better feedback and we'll all be more interested in looking at it. But I feel like that's that's my challenge as somebody doing 
when I'm wearing the little information architecture hat is to try and get someone engaged at that point and, and reiterate that it will, even if it doesn't, you know, totally make sense or feel that exciting, like it will pay dividends later when we're, when things are clicking together rather than being, you know, kind of like reworked because we didn't pay attention at this phase or something like that. It's funny. I mean, there are some fantastic tools for doing kind of uh, database design and, and content modeling and that type of thing. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I tend to just use like a piece of paper and I sketch out the where I think the different models would be. And I just draw lines for the, the connections and that for whatever reason that helps my brain kind of gel together the way the whole big picture works better than sitting at a computer and doing it. And I don't, I don't really know why, but I don't do that round trip typically with the client in terms of, you know, here's this, <laughs> here's a drawing that I did, you know, what do you think of this uh, sketched on a napkin thing? Uh, Katie, what do you think of what Matt was talking about in terms of like expressing the content model in, in human terms and kind of running them by the, the client? That's what I tend to do too. And I think wow. a main benefit from it is checking assumptions early. Mm-hmm. So like Jen was saying, mm-hmm. you know, later on, if you find out that something was wrong, it's going to take more time to change it probably if you've already yeah. set it up and coded it, as opposed to if it's just a couple of words that you need to change. So I like to yeah. set up, you know, like, what is this field? Where are we going to see it? What type of data will it take? What are some examples? And then try to really get the range of what type of data it can take. I feel like that's the right priority though, too. Like the goal isn't to build a beautiful, shiny dumpster and then jam crap into it. It's to (laughs) use the start with something to say. And that's why we're doing this. Let's build off of that. What do you want to say? How do you want to say it? And you know, how much complexity is there to that? And then we build on that, not build a beautiful thing because it felt fun and then figure out how to put stuff in it. That's just kind of backwards. Oh, man. Yeah. I actually start every build with basically strategic planning. I like trick them into doing strategic planning. Yeah, it's all say, about kind trickery. And then that usually comes into like, why do you exist? <laughs> <laughs> then everybody cries well, but, and then we hug and then it gets better. No, I think that really helps. And before I will typically, before I do any kind of work for a company, I spend a good bit of time just learning about them and their business, you know, and what what is important to them, because I think that matters in the this public thing that then represents them. But I, Matt, I think your your shiny dumpster <laughs> analogy is absolutely amazing because the shiniest of shiny dumpsters is the full visual text editor, right? If, if all we cared about was just giving them flexibility, like we want to give them Patrick level flexibility where they can do whatever we want. We just give them this the shiny little gooey where they can just dump whatever they want in there, right? Patrick, do you feel like you should defend yourself? <laughs> uh, uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Have we convinced you to change your ways? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> he's he's sick of me misrepresenting his his views. <laughs> No, but, it, you know, I'm, I'm just teasing you. But seriously, it, it is a really good point, right? In that we want to have something that isn't just this big, shiny repository they can throw all their junk in, but has a, a system where the stuff goes that not only helps them organize stuff, but also makes sense to them. Yep. And I think the tension that we keep coming back to in this conversation is between flexibility and structure. Right. Right. And both are important so, to have longevity of content. So what's the right answer? Or does it, is it one of those, it depends kind of thing in terms of where along the line uh, we, that things should be? Yeah, I think there's a balance point in the middle of those and it's different for each project and it might change over the life yeah. of a project too. Yeah. Which is why it's tough for me to say, no, you can never edit the nav. And again, I'm okay with it as long as there are permission systems involved in there. Like honestly, like the, the people that I would want to be able to make major changes to the UX like that 
would actually be if they had a team, an internal team of UX designers. Like that's who I would give their permission to, <laughs> you know, that they, you know what you're doing. Okay, you can change that part of the thing. One thing that I wonder about larger agencies and how they do this is how, for me, I feel like, I don't know if it's half or what the ratio is, but I can do so much upfront, only so much upfront to take my best guesses, name things well, things we've been talking about a little bit, having sensible field instructions, training, or at least kind of doing an initial review of the site. But then I'm going to learn a lot. Everybody is going to learn a lot by using the thing and then adapting from there and learning where the pain points are and kind of handling those over time, which is fairly easy for me because I wear all the little hats and I'm there usually supporting a client in the long term with a project. But for like a bigger agency that does big projects, like is is there follow up maintenance or check ins and kind of revisions and stuff like that? I'm just wondering how that works at a scale that's very different from my own in terms of learning from the client's interaction with the project and then adapting. Well, Jennifer, what do you do after the fact with clients? Do you do any kind of scheduled postmortems? Not usually, because most of the time there will be some interaction after the fact. I can't, I can't say for very large agencies, and I've only been working with a few craft sites, but I've made a lot um, with my team, a lot of sort of larger organizational products, like data dashboards that dozens of users will use. And what we try to do is schedule check-ins every so often, not so much about the, is is this particular field okay, but just sort of general user experience issues. And then in those conversations, the issues will sometimes come up, but sometimes not. It's only when you actually even accidentally observe them, use things that you see how things are going wrong. But it's something that I like to do more. It, usually it's a time constraint issue. There's it, it's sort of a thing that we all agree is important, but never urgent. So I, sometimes I have to sort of say, okay, well, you know, I haven't checked in with this client in a while. I needed an excuse to let's, let's do this. But again, not as often as, as we should. And I, I think you're right. If, if you don't do it, then time goes on and things get more and more, they can get more and more out of control. So it's kind of a good way to sort of clean up the dumpster before it gets overflowing. You know, something that we should all maybe remember, the more you check in, the, 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 the cleaner things will be. This reminds me of, so I've got a, a dog that um, she unfortunately had cancer and I had to bring her in for some chemotherapy treatments and stuff like that. Don't worry, no one, no one needs to cry because she's doing great. She's actually right behind me, just snuggling up with my son right now. But after we did that, like after we had the, the treatments, there were scheduled check-ins where we would, in six months, we would bring the dog back and have him checked out. I have also heard of some agencies and some freelancers doing this where they build into the pricing and the structure of the agreement, the website build, that there's going to be a postmortem done in three months and then a another one, you know, maybe six months later where they'll actually spend some time and say, you know, how what is working for you? What isn't working? And it, and it helps both the client in terms of, you know, making sure that the thing is still working properly for them. And it also helps the, the developer and the UX designers to see, you know, how how did this actually end up working for our client? What do you folks think about doing something like that? Where you, as a line item in the budget, six month postmortem? I would love to do that. And I think we may have the opportunity on some of our projects because we try to maintain long-term relationships with a lot of our 
uh, clients that we do big projects for. One of the things that I did, or sorry, I'll let other people answer first. Yeah, and I want to stress before anyone else jumps in that this is different from just an ongoing maintenance contract. So an ongoing maintenance contract is you'll you continue to maintain things and you'll fix things. This is a scheduled postmortem where you will have a set number of hours, you know, maybe six hours, 10 hours, whatever, dedicated to doing a postmortem to discover how well this thing is working. What do you think about doing something like that, Jen? I love the idea. I think it depends on the client. Some will be very enthusiastic and some will just not not bother allocating the time. Right. It, but it's I, I think it's it's really important. And I think hopefully if you've done a good job and if they have you know if they if you had the right project manager on their side to make sure everything went okay, hopefully you won't come back in six months and have them say, you know, all of this is wrong and we need to fix you know, half the things and we don't use half the site because we don't need it or it just doesn't work. And hopefully you won't have that experience in the postmortem because we've done all the things that everyone here has talked about. But even so, even with all the preparation that you can do and everyone has the best intentions, you can still end up with a website that's only half working. And a postmortem could be a great way to one, get back in touch with the client if you're not already and, you know, show them that you know, you're still involved and you still care about what's what's going on and how their business is doing. And, and then, and then too, you can learn a lot from that for, for the next bill that you're going to do. So yeah, I definitely want to, you know, I'm going to make a note for myself to sort of make a list of clients I haven't spoken to in a while and, and try to schedule that. I suspect that many of them just won't think it's that important or, or they won't think it's urgent, although they will all acknowledge acknowledge that it's important. What do you think, Patrick? Do you like the idea of scheduling a, a six-month postmortem? My fear is that in any sort of contract negotiation, that would be the very first thing they say, well, how much can we save if we get this mm-hmm. you know, out of the contract? Right. Uh, I personally go for a, a maintenance agreement or something that keeps us hooked in and with constant communication. And we, we would just do that sort of a, hey, here's what we're seeing. Here's the suggestion. Do you want us to you know, fix this as part of the maintenance contract if it's really large as part of an SOW? But I'm sure there are people that can make something like that fly. But to me, it would be one of the first things to get cut out of any sort of negotiation. Yeah. And I wonder if some clients might be like, well, don't you know what you're doing? Mm-hmm. You know, aren't you going to build it right the right. first time? Right. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think, Matt? I'm, I'm trying to blend the approaches right now with, again, more trickery as part of my maintenance and support plans. And I say maintenance so- and support, what? Uh, sounds like a comb over. It's not going to work, Matt. You can't blend it. Okay, It is. It is. And let me tell you how it's going to. Andrew. Okay. <laughs> so what I'm doing with maintenance and support plans is support is part of it. And support doesn't just mean, you know, if, if something is on fire at three in the morning, I'll help. Hopefully it's not because I don't want to. But what it means to have one of those is that every quarter or every year, depending on, you know, whatever plan you've picked out, I will send a summary of how things have been going. That'll include like uptime, how many software updates there have been, you know, what kind of incidents there were, what the SEO picture looks like very broadly, and kind of invite the client to talk about how the site is doing, not just in terms of performance, but how's business? How's it connecting with your business goals? And so far, it's been pretty effective at it's, it's not a required discussion because if the client wants to blow it off, fine. Um, I don't want it to be like a bunch of commitment, but it's been a somewhat successful way just to keep in touch about not just how the site's doing, but how the site is serving the business or not or how it could improve. And I think that's working 
pretty well without being something like Patrick said, that's, that's, you know, somebody might look at and go, ah, we'll get rid of this as soon as we can, just because it's part of maintenance and support. I ended up taking on one of your old clients, Matt, and they said, they said, no, Matt was wonderful, but he, he's kind of needy. Like he kept on wanting to hear about my feelings and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, just strange, constant contact stuff. But yeah, Katie, and they get a restraining order, and I get the hint. <laughs> 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 and then, and then you have to change states. You have to, you have to move. <laughs> yeah, but you know, all all learning. Yeah, I think the report sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Katie, Katie, you had some, you had some, I'm sorry, Katie, you had some more thoughts on this that you wanted to, to mention in terms of the idea of doing a six month postmortem on stuff? Yeah, so I'm thinking back to when I worked um, internally, I worked at a nonprofit for about six years. And that's when I started making websites. And I did every quarter or so a big website review. For us, that included checking all the Google Analytics, looking for you know dead links and pages that weren't performing, checking SEO, and doing a content audit to make sure that things were current. And it was, you know, mm -hmm. it was one of those things that was important but not urgent. So sometimes we ended up skipping it. But even if you only do that once a year, that's better than never. And I think it's probably best if the client can own that themselves. But that could be something that we, as the supporting agency, can guide for them. And something that I would love to figure out is how to build that into craft more. Like I was thinking about how I can kind of incorporate content audit tools right into the element index views so that you can see when it was last audited. I have added checkboxes for internal status and like a notes field. So on any page, the author can go in and mark like, oh, hey, this is outdated or this has style issues or this is incomplete so that they can scan for those and update the pages of problems. Yeah, that was one of my bigger projects. I actually wrote a Craft 2 plugin that I just decided I'm not going to bother porting called auditor and it had a reminder field to prompt people because there are a lot of editors to prompt people to come back and update specific entries at a specific time yeah. really simple but it just send an email with whatever note they left themselves from the past <laughs> and then there was a system that if somebody one of the editors with in a specific group didn't touch that after they got 10 reminders it would notify somebody that would go and prod them and we built little tools like that there was an asset uploader to limit inappropriately sized and named things that would show up. I know you guys probably don't ever experience things like that with your projects, but we had an issue with people uploading things that shouldn't belong. Mm -hmm. So we made a tool that actually made it easier and made it, you know, you could crop and do stuff that you can now do natively in Craft 3, which is a lot better, but built a whole suite of these things and it was really fun, but I don't normally have projects like that that are kind of justify that amount of customization. And then you realized how much technical debt you created by customizing <laughs> Mm -hmm. and doing all the custom things, right? Yeah, that's always the, the balance there. But I think the, this whole discussion, I think, is really fantastic because I think we spend, we as developers spend a whole lot of time thinking about, from a technical point of view, how do we build the thing? Or we as designers spend a whole lot of time thinking about what is this going to look like on the front end? And I think that, and I don't think author experience is forgotten, but I think it's not talked about quite as much as those other two aspects of it. But for some projects, I mean, it, it, especially if you have people that are going to be spending a whole lot of time in the CMS doing authoring, like that might even be one of the most important things, right, Katie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing more. That about wraps it <laughs> Sorry, up I was making for another episode. Based on what Matt had said, <laughs> I, 
We're done. The, the mic has been dropped. That about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. If you'd like to have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, you can subscribe via RSS or find us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, please review the show on iTunes. It's the best way to help find others find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at devmode.fm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Leave us a comment on the devmode.fm website where we can continue the conversation. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Jennifer Blumberg. I'm Matt Stein. And I'm Patrick Harrington. And thank you so much, Katie Fritz, for coming thank on. Thank to appreciate how much self-control and restraint that I showed by using the term deadbeat dads instead of sperm donors when it comes to (laughs) when it comes to developers creating websites good job Andrew (laughs) we're still gonna get complaints you think so maybe Katie I have no opinion from who though (laughs) deadbeat mother